On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast with me, Scott Radley, sitting in for the vacationing Rick Zamper today, we're talking about the Arrive Can app and how mayors of border cities are really not happy with this thing and probably with good reason. We'll talk to Jim Diodotti from Niagara Falls about that. We will be chatting about rowing across the Great Lakes, about the collapse, it's an interesting word to be using, of our healthcare system We'll be chatting about Bill C-11. If you don't know what that is, it's called the Online Censorship Act. Whether that's a fair term or not, we'll get into that one. The Tea Party is back touring. Rick Zamperin has a guest interview with the Tea Party. And the Memorial Cup begins. All that stuff and more coming up. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Here's what the mayor of Niagara Falls had to say the other day. This year, with this uncertainty and, and confusion, the labyrinth of rules at the border with this Arrive Can app, it's going to be a disaster at the border if the Americans even choose to come. That was a quote from Jim Diodati, who is the mayor of Niagara Falls, who joins us now. Mr. Mayor, thank you for the time today. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me, Scott. So, uh, as I say, I don't want to make this a personal thing too much, but I came across the border yesterday. We'd been away, and thankfully I was with the, my mom, who is 85, was with me, because I can guarantee you she would have never figured out how to do this had we not been there. And even I was struggling to do this. I can't imagine the impact this must be having on all kinds of people who might want to come and visit your city. Well, you're exactly right. You know, it, it's creating a whole bunch of problems. And the, and the first one is a lot of people are choosing just not to come to Canada. They bypassed us and they're going elsewhere, spending their leisure dollars, which is a disaster because in Canada, tourism, hospitality, it's a $105 billion industry. It's huge. And just in Niagara, we've got 40,000 people that count on tourism to feed their families. So it's important. And although I've heard people say, well, you have to diversify your economy, and I don't disagree with that, but it's pretty hard not to be heavily invested in tourism when you live right next to one of the great natural wonders of the world. So it's been devastating. The Americans are just trickling back. We're nowhere near where we used to be and where we should be. And yet I can tell you domestic tourism is back to pre-19, pre-2019 levels. So this is clearly a factor of the border rules and Arrive Can leads the way. I know that you and other mayors have reached out or tried to reach out to the federal government to say, do something about this. What's the response been? Well, I have spoken with the federal public safety minister and the federal tourism ministers. And I said, listen, obviously somebody in Ottawa is in love with this app. The federal government put another $25 million into it and nobody can understand. We get why it was created in the beginning. And I said this to the ministers. It made sense. We stood with you. We supported you. But now we've gone way beyond that. It serves no good purpose anymore. It simply duplicates what they already do at the border. And unfortunately, 50 cents out of every dollar that comes into tourism used to come from the U.S. We're lagging way behind. And I said, at the very least, get rid of it at land border crossings. If you want to keep it in airports for now, go ahead. The majority of tourists that come into Canada do it across land border crossings. We said, you're killing our communities, please. And they thought it was a reasonable request to remove it at land border crossings, except they said this will have to come right from the very top. Well, I'll tell you another thing that uh, became a problem. If personal experience, and I'm sure this affects you as well, and that is when you are, you have to fill it out before you get to the border. 
and you have to choose which border crossing you're going to take before you get there. Well, there are signs as you approach saying, here's what the wait is at this border or this border. One of them yesterday was way longer than the others. And yet if you had checked that one off, you were already committed. And I tell you what, I think there's a lot of people who, if they do it once and they get stuck for an hour and a half at one border when the other border had a 10 minute wait, that one time is enough to tell them, I don't want to do this again. It's not worth it. Well, you're exactly right. And that's for tourists. And, you know, it's funny, the federal government said, well, we've got high compliance rates, which is very misleading. Uh, The fact is, CBSA reported that their high number was after CBSA worked with all these people. And I can tell you, even those numbers are misleading because most Americans choose not to come. So it's been a definite deterrent for tourism and customer service has been lagging way behind. That's for tourists. And then for locals, like the example you used, I have received so many calls and emails from seniors who feel this is a discriminatory practice. It's offensive to seniors who are not digitally up on technology. I had one gentleman, he stands out in particular, he's 87 years old, originally from Scotland. He said, I'm a proud Canadian and I'm proud to show my passport. I'm happy to show that I've been vaccinated and I've had my booster. He said, but I'm offended that I have to be able to be with somebody or someone to show me how to use technology just to cross the border to visit my family. He said, that is offensive to people like me. I have a flip phone, which I can barely use. And then they'll say things like, well, get your grandkids to do it for you. Or they'll say, oh, we've made an easy desktop app for you. And I can tell you, my dad's a great example. He glazes over when you say that. They will just avoid it. They're very intimidated by it. It doesn't serve any useful purpose. And the other thing, Scott, we've always said, let's follow the science. Well, the science experts like Dr. Zane Chagla from McMaster are telling us there's no useful purpose any longer for this app. It's time to remove it. It's putting a chokehold on border communities and tourism. It's been frustrating for people in Canada that go back and forth to visit their family, visit their friends. And we're asking the federal government, please do the right thing. And as my friend, the mayor of Sarnia, Mike Bradley says, when the horse is dead, dismount. Hmm. Do, do Here's the other thing that I didn't even contemplate until we were crossing yesterday. Americans who are coming to the border, do Americans even know about the Arrive Can app? Well, that's a really great point, Scott. And, and this is what I try to stress to our, our federal representatives. I said, do you think Americans are watching what's happening in Ottawa and announcements out of Ottawa? Because they're absolutely not. And they think they're proud of the fact that they have a passport. Because I can tell you after 9-11, at that time, only less than 5% of Americans had passports. Now the number is more than 50%, which is great. So they show up with that. They show up with their vaccination status. And then they're told, Where's your Arrive Can app information? And they're, they, they genuinely do not know because this is rare. Most countries do not do anything like this. So they're frustrated. And imagine this, a family shows up not knowing, the whole family in the minivan, they get to the border. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't have Wi-Fi or roaming. They can't download it. They, if they're lucky, get let in. Hopefully they don't have to isolate Then they go home and they tell all the friends and family because we know what a disgruntled customer does. They tell everybody. And this is traveling through the United States. Canada is closed. They don't want us to come. And that is the message. And the other problem is 
If we wait too long, we won't have time to market the changes if we do remove this ridiculous app requirement that Americans won't know. I mean, us in tourism, we'll advertise and tell them, but until they announce it, we and, and if we don't have enough time, there won't be enough runway to let the Americans mm. know that they can come. It is uh, from experience. Uh, the sooner we get rid of this thing, the better. But um, as I say, don't take it from me. Take it from the mayor of Niagara Falls, Jim Diodati. Thanks for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Have a great day. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. That is the Tea Party, who is, who are, back on tour this year. Everyone was off tour for the last little while, but they are back on tour. They were playing the Burlington Sound and Music Festival on the weekend. And just before that, Rick Zamperin got the opportunity to sit down and chat with Stuart Chatwood of the Tea Party. Here's their conversation. Stuart, how are you? I'm great. Great to be here. You're uh, kicking off the Tea Party, or at least uh, continuing the Tea Party tour. What is the best part of playing in front of people? Is it that rush of the unknown? Like, who knows what can happen? It's a live show. Is it, you know, the energy from the crowd? Is it just the feeling of creating something organic? What's the best part? Yeah, I mean, when we began, I guess, there was a bit of anxiety. Now that we're a little older, we don't care as much about what people think of us. So the real excitement and has always been is the energy, the exchange from like a full audience that's engaged, even if they're booing you. (laughs) But uh, typically like our magical nights are in uh, Montreal and uh, I know Buffalo has a great following for the Tea Party and just the audience is just hanging on every note and like giving you energy and you're giving them energy and and, and it, it becomes a magical exchange, you know? Have you guys ever gotten booed? And if so, what's that like? I don't think we've gotten booed. Uh, I, I was just using that as a reference. I quite often say to people, I'd rather get booed than ignored. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah no, the worst we've point. got is um, I think we were in Italy uh, playing with an unknown band called Muse, who are quite big now. Hmm. Uh, and we were both supporting all these hard rock acts like Slayer and Rage Against the Machine. And um, the audience in Italy just you know, Muse got soaked with water. Like they'd throw these water bags of water because they banned water bottles, obviously. (laughs) Uh, So, and we got, I think I got hit with one of those. I did get hit with a bra too. So I don't know if that's the salt. Uh, It was was a grandma. It was a grandma bra though. So it was quite large. (laughs) Uh, The current tour hit cities uh, across Ontario, including Burlington Sound of Music Festival. You have stops in uh, Quebec and Newfoundland, Alberta, BC, Buffalo as well. You mentioned that earlier. You guys have played around the world as well. Do you have a favorite city that you've been to? Um, well, we shot a video in Istanbul, Turkey, and um, uh, my kid goes to school with a Turkish uh, boy, and he just had a birthday party, and this other parent from Turkey came over, and he's like, I know you, and he, he recognized us, Wow! because a lot of bands went to shoot videos in Turkey, and he was a hard rock fan, and uh, my other friend uh, you know, was just amazed that someone halfway around the world uh, knew who I was, and <laughs> but uh, favorite place? Um, I think, or event. I think I think the SARS uh, uh, fast or SARS talk or whatever they want to call it uh, when we played in Toronto with the Stones and ACDC to sort of tell the world that Toronto was open for business after the the SARS uh, virus in two thousand three. That was definitely one of the magical nights because it was half a million people almost, and you know, which is pretty much the city of Winnipeg if you destroyed all the buildings and you looked out. <laughs> and, <laughs> 
But uh, just meeting so many people and just the energy there. And the other one would be playing with Jimmy Page and Robert Plant uh, when they toured. We got to play with them at the Bell, or actually the, the old Forum in Montreal. And we got a standing ovation as the opening act, which was unheard of. Like the crew were like, I've never seen that before, you know? Wow, so, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and we got to meet them and Jeff Martin became friends with Jimmy Page and went to stay with Jimmy Page and he played a concert in London with Jimmy Page. It was so it was the beginning of a, a magical couple of years there. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Stuart Chatwood from the Tea Party. Check out their website for all the tour dates coming up, teaparty.com. I did not know that you were behind some video game soundtracks like uh, Prince of Persia series. How did all that come about? Um, we were known for world music, and one of the producers that helped us with uh, uh, this world music EP that we made in 1996 went on to work on the Prince of Persia and invited me to do the soundtrack. And I said, sure, I'll, I'll do the soundtrack for you. And then he called me two years later and, and he said, are you ready to pitch? And I'm like, huh? Pitch? <laughs> <laughs> so he put me up against 10 of the best composers for video games in Hollywood. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, I have no chance. I had such a steep learning curve. But uh, they played it at the boardroom as they do. And uh, you know, I got the thumbs up and that led to me doing seven of those. And I'm currently working on this series called The Darkest Dungeon out of Vancouver. And it's done tremendously well. It's like over 6 million copies on the first game for an indie game. That's, that's quite big numbers. So I'm, I'm really honored to work on that game now as well. Were you a video gamer growing up? I was. Were you? <laughs> <laughs> Weren't we all? <laughs> yeah, I'm a vintage guy, like going back to, you know, the Atari 2600 days. Yeah. And, um, you know, just life gets in the way, though. But uh, I have a son and a daughter that are interested in gaming. And my, my son wants to make games. So I'm going to help him with that pursuit, I think. Yeah, I didn't go the Atari route. I was stuck with Intellivision, which kept me entertained wow. during my youth, okay. but uh, I'm not going to complain. Right. <laughs> uh, I'll say this as well. You know, you're know, you known as a bassist and a multi-instrumentalist. Aside from the bass, what instrument brings you the most joy to play? Well, I love piano. And uh, just you can sit down and it's in tune, which is nice. I have a grand piano in my house too, which helps. But uh, I mean, you'd expect that. If I've been working at music my whole life, save up for a grand piano, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just great how you can learn music on it. And uh, it's a great teaching thing, but, um, um, that's probably my favorite. Uh, my other favorite to listen to would be Andreas Segovia, who's a Spanish, uh, classical guitarist. And, uh, he just, I don't know, he ignites my brain when I listen to that stuff in the morning. So, yeah. Stuart Chadwood has been our guest, a bassist, multi-instrumentalist with the Tea Party. Check out their upcoming tour dates online at teaparty.com. Stuart, appreciate the time. Great chat. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The last couple of years, last few years maybe, have been, uh, as everyone listening knows, everyone listening knows this, have been a challenge for our healthcare system. Obviously, we, we don't, I don't think it's an overstatement to say we don't have a healthcare system that was designed for a pandemic. Nobody apparently does. Nobody did. However... It's not just the pandemic now. There are other issues. And coming out of the pandemic, there are strains that are being put on our healthcare system that are leading people who are in positions to apparently know this stuff to say some pretty ominous things about what's happening. Dr. Catherine Smart, who's president of the Canadian Medical Association, was on a news show the other day, said this, what's clearly coming is the collapse of the current healthcare system. That is a strikingly strong statement to make. Now, again, president of the CMA should know 
of what she speaks. I want to bring in Dr. Ann Collins, who is the past president of that same organization, to chat about this. Uh, Dr. Collins, thank you for the time today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So are we, in fact, I mean, the collapse of the system, it sounds so unbelievably strong, but is that what's happening? Well, we have to remember that, yes, certainly we have been slammed by uh, this pandemic, but many of the issues that have now come to the forefront were there prior to uh, March of, uh, of 2020. But what we're seeing now is, is on a different scale altogether. Last weekend, the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario reported their busiest weekend in 48 years, their busiest May ever. And we're seeing increasingly across the country, um, my local hospital here in Fredericton, New Brunswick, uh, advertised on Friday that they would be physician short-staffed and nursing short-staffed over the weekend and to please, please not come unless it was an emergency uh, we're seeing family doctors uh, uh, in the community uh, closing their practices, uh, you know, before they would have normally, uh, you know, at, at an earlier age than, uh, than would be expected. We have huge surgical backlogs uh, across the country. People that were on the list for hip and knee replacements prior to the pandemic are still there mm. and will likely be for many, many months. And then we've got all of those folks who didn't come in to see their physician or if they had one during the pandemic for fear of getting COVID. And now they're starting to present with later onset disease that requires greater care. So, yeah, I I think that that's a fairly um, accurate depiction of, of what's looming here unless we start to see change. That last one you mentioned uh, has been the one that's really, I've wondered about for the duration of this, is that, you know, it's one thing to not get your hip or knee replaced, and, uh, you know, thankfully I'm not in that position, hopefully you're not either, but to someone who is, that's a life-altering thing not to be able to have that done, but for someone who doesn't go to the doctor and now goes for a checkup and finds out that something that might have been caught a year ago is advanced, that, that's, that seems like it's where we could have real, real problems in this. Absolutely. Um, You know, a lot of screening procedures um, were delayed or put off during the pandemic. And and for sure, uh, you know, some folks who perhaps had symptoms that they, you know, thought uh, this can wait or I'm not going in, um, you know, to see somebody to sit in a room, I'm afraid I'll get COVID or, or, or even more sadly, if they don't have anyone to go to with the declining numbers. We know that there are 5 million Canadians across the country who do not have a family doctor. And and yet not to minimize the disability and, and pain that uh, having a, a, an arthritic or a broken down joint can cause as well and, and affect people's um, productivity, uh, their ability to work, their, their life enjoyment. So on many scales, uh, backlog and wait times has a profound impact on Canadians. When you talked about the doctors shutting their offices in the hospital out there in Fredericton being short-staffed on the weekend, is that largely just a function of burnout from the physicians and the nurses working so much during the pandemic that they've finally, now that it seems to have abated a little bit, said, I, I have to step away a, bit, a little? Absolutely. We uh, did a recent survey in the fall that showed that um, 
you know, close to 50% of the physicians and nurses surveyed said that they were experiencing some degree of burnout. Compare that to a survey about four years ago, and it was around 35%. So that's a huge increase. And moreover, we're not seeing, um, it's not just a problem of retaining those people and supporting their mental health and making them feel, um, you know, recognized and appreciated. We're not um, training enough uh, health professionals to, to backfill those spaces. Um, so yeah, burnout's a huge component to it, but um, also we're we're going to need a lot more people and people practicing in different styles of practice as well to make it more desirable for them to stay in practice. That that you know, we just had an election here in Ontario, and different parties had promised different things, and it was one of the the things you just talked about. Though I wondered about because there were promises of hiring. I don't know, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 nurses. I can't remember what the number was. It was in the tens mm-hmm. of thousands, though. And the the challenge with that is it's great to say that, but where do you find these people? They're not There's not 20,000 out-of-work nurses just sitting there waiting for a job. It's, it's, it's one thing to say we want to bring these people in, but how, how do you find those people to do that? Yeah, so we have to, to look at making those careers more uh, enticing, to, to people. And as I said earlier, people want to feel seen, they want to feel heard, and they want to feel appreciated. That's a large part of it. But we also have to look at um, training, how, you know, to, to train more people and to train, you know, we know that young docs nowadays are look more favorably on practicing in team-based environments where there are nurses, nurse practitioners, uh, other health professionals to to help them and their patients with the problems that they are presenting. And and so, you know, look at different ways of training healthcare professionals to not do it in silos, but to use that team-based approach. And that's one of the things that we've advocated for is for funding to be directed in that, in that way. And we, we have to, you know, one of the other suggestions that we have made uh, to government is to look at uh, different ways to enhance the training and licensing of um, internationally educated professionals, nurses and physicians as well. So there are, you know, we have looked at, CMA has provided uh, solutions to government all, at all levels to look at ways of solving these problems. But you're right, it's not something that can happen overnight. This is, this is not a quick fix situation. But if we don't start looking at some of the things that need fixed, it's never going to happen. Wish we had a lot more time to talk about this. It's a really important uh, story and an important topic for sure. Dr. Ann Collins, past president of the Canadian Medical Association. Thank you so much for this. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You've probably heard something over the last number of months or years about Bill C-11. You may or may not have paid all that close attention. These bills are, you know... Do we pay attention to all of them? Probably not. This one, though, sounds like it's one that you should be paying very close attention to, and here's why. It's def- It's been called the online censorship bill. The government wouldn't, I'm sure, use those same words. But a new study is out about this. It's written by Jay Goldberg, uh, Michael, Dr. Michael Geist from the University of Ottawa, expert in online legal issues, is the senior advisor on this one. The report is called Bill C-11, a fatally flawed gateway to government censorship. Let me take a quote. 
that I want to give to you before we bring on our guest here. The Trudeau government says the CRTC will only have the power to filter and prioritize what we see online based on whether the content qualifies as Canadian. But that opens a Pandora's box. These powers could easily be repurposed in the future for other means, including quieting the government's critics. That quote is by Jay Goldberg, who is the Ontario Interim Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. He joins us now. Jay, how are you this morning? Doing well. How are you? Doing great. Listen, anytime we start talking about a government repurposing something to use it for nefarious means, uh, you get one of two responses. Either people say that's terrifying or they say you're terrifying because you're making something up here that isn't really the case and you're being, you know, saying something that's just trying to get people angry. Is this really opening the door to allow the government to use this in a way that might not be for everyone's good? Yes, it, it is doing that. And, um, you know, you don't have to be extreme and say the government of today is going to do that or the government that we have in office right now might do that. But the powers that they're giving the CRTC, essentially what they're doing is allowing the CRTC to decide what we see online and prioritize what we see online. And right now their plan is just to push Canadian content. So when you're on social media, uh, when you're on your streaming services, you're going to see Canadian content first. So that's the government being able to filter what you see. And they're doing it according to them for the purpose of trying to promote Canadian content. But that creates a mechanism through which the government can filter what we see. Today they're saying they, they want to do it to promote Canadian content, but that apparatus is then there for a future government to use it for any other purpose, including trying to push favorable content for the government and trying to demote content that's not favorable towards the government. Again. We're not saying it's going to happen tomorrow, but you're putting the tools in place that could allow this to happen down the road. I'm try. I'm still trying to understand. Even if you you even if you take the government entirely at its word, I'm trying to understand why this is necessary right now, or how this could even be successful in a world where the internet, assuming we still have full access to the internet, how that we have all of our choices. Why why would this be successful? Why is it needed? Well, it's not needed, and the government says it's needed because it's too difficult to find Canadian content, but the reality is it's not. And we've seen hundreds of millions of dollars in investment in Canadian content from Netflix. The government's trying to say that we need to promote Canadian content because it's not getting enough uh, revenue. Well, the reality is that in 2020, we had $6 billion of foreign investment in Canadian film and television. So the industry is actually doing very well. And uh, if they want to try to promote Canadian content, certainly one thing you can do, which the government's been doing for years, is giving money to these companies uh, to try to continue to create Canadian content. Uh, but regulating what we can say, see, and share online uh, is just going completely overboard. And essentially the bill is not really fulfilling the purpose that it's said to do. The purpose is to try to preserve and promote Canadian content, according to the government. Well, number one, they can do that by just promoting Canadian content without filtering what we see and share online. But the other thing is Canadian content's doing really well. It has more investment per capita than content from the UK or content from France. As I said, it's got $6 billion in foreign investment in one year alone. So Canadian content's doing well, and there's certainly no reason to put our free expression rights at risk 
for a bill that's really not needed. It's going to be a weird question, I understand, to make the connection here, but when I hear this, that, well, no, this is only for this, my first thought goes to the assisted dying, the medical maid, the physician-assisted suicide law that Canada passed, because back then we heard this is only ever going to be for those with an incurable medical condition. We will never expand this beyond that. That is only and exclusively what this is going to be for. And now we've already had two, maybe three expansions to the point now where we're getting into areas of mental health that we never contemplated. And I mentioned that I know medical assistance in dying is not tied to this. But anytime I hear a government say, no, this will only ever be for this sole purpose, I think, no, that's that's never going to be true. This will change over time. It has to. It always does. It always does. And as you were saying, with that medically assisted dying law, you know, that was only passed into law well under 10 years ago. This is a relatively new law. And already it's been changed, as you said, about three times. And so inevitably what happens in government is if you give uh, the, the mechanism, the power uh, over a certain area, and the government has it there, and it's sitting there, and they can use it, uh, you better believe that they're probably going to use it in the future. And so today, yes, they're using it to try to promote Canadian content, um, but tomorrow they could be using it for something else. And one thing that I think is actually really important to point out for all those who are in favor of Canadian content is that if we're promoting Canadian content here in Canada, but inherently deprioritizing content that's from abroad, we face the very real risk of in other countries absolutely other doing the exact same thing, and Canadian content won't succeed abroad in the way that it is right now. For sure. Jay, we got to run, unfortunately. I wish we had a lot more time to talk about this, but that is uh, Jay Goldberg, the Ontario Interim Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Jay, thanks for this. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. If you've been out on the water this summer or last summer or any summer, you know that, you know, a nice cruise around the lake can take your day. Take some time. You're going to be out there. It's, you know, it's fun, but boy, it, it, it does take some time on the water to get around. Well, now imagine paddling a full lake or imagine paddling, well, how about Lake Huron? I mean, just a nice little little paddle across Lake Huron. Well, my next guest just did that. And now he's set his sights on other things. And um, it's not just that he's paddling these lakes, right? It's not just that he's doing that. Let me read his own Twitter handle because of probably the best way to, uh, to describe it. I'm Mike. I have disabilities and I am crossing the Great Lakes trying to put mental health and suicide prevention programs in schools across the country. His name is Mike Shoreman, who joins me now. Mike, how are you? Greg, how are you? I'm terrific. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate your time. I, I'd just be asleep at this point if I was you, but uh, <laughs> good for you. That, that That is unbelievable to paddle across Lake Huron. Tw- was it 28 hours? 28 hours. So I did Lake Erie first and that uh, took just over seven, seven hours. And then um, that was, that was, a, that was four weeks ago. And then, and then last week I did Lake Huron. So, and you're still, and, and after doing that for 28 hours, you didn't decide, you know, this was a great idea until I had to do it. But now I think I'm going to try doing like small ponds. You're still going uh, for the Great Lakes. Yeah, no, we head out for, uh, we leave Hamilton actually for um, next weekend. Uh, my my team is a Hamilton team. Um, and we leave out, we leave from Hamilton next Sunday for Michigan. And that will be... Uh, 
the Lake Huron crossing was about 28 hours, and, and we're thinking the Lake Michigan is going to be about 28, 30 hours, and that will arrive into Chicago. I, I don't even know that there's anything I could do for 28 straight hours, honestly, and not let alone something like that requires the exertion of doing this. How how do you do something like How do you even prepare yourself to be paddling for 28 straight hours? So it's a lot of training all year long. Um, I'm, I'm not an athlete. I'm, you know, some, I'm, a, I used to be a paddleboarding coach. Um, and I developed a neurological condition, uh, the same as Justin Bieber. Um, and it, it immobilized me. So I lost my independence and I had to learn how to walk again. And the, and the doctor said that I would never paddleboard again. Um, but I decided I wanted to do this as a homage, as an homage to, to the great Vicki Keith from 1988. Right. And uh, I wanted to set out to do her, you know, the crossings that she undertook. And, um, and this year it's to put mental health programs and in schools, uh, for kids. Um, so I brought on a, you know, a team of trainers and nutritionists and dietitians throughout these crossings, like throughout the Lake Huron crossing, I would stop every 30 minutes for 30 seconds and they would pass me a shake with, with, you know, 400, 400 carbs in it. And, yeah. and I down it quick and pass it back and keep on going. And I did that for, tw- you know, 28 hours. See, you um, just so told me something. You just told me something though, that I know is not true. When you said, I'm not an athlete, you are absolutely an athlete. If you can do this, I don't care what you think your background was. You are an athlete. Holy cow. <laughs> uh, well, I just think that I'm just kind of like the guy next door. <laughs> but, um, but no, I hope, um, I hope it sends a big message about persons with disabilities. And I hope it, it reminds people um, that they can accomplish anything that they set their minds to. And I hope that it raises a lot of money for kids mm. because mental health is suicide is the leading cause of health related death in Canada right now. And, um, and I hope it does a lot of good. When I talked about not doing anything for 28 straight hours, how much though, how many times when you're in a 28 hour paddle, do you say to yourself, I've got to stop. I just can't do this. There had to be points when you were thinking this is just crazy. There were many points. I, uh, I had a medical emergency in the middle of the night it was about one o'clock in the morning and they pulled me over to the boat and they tended to my foot. My foot expanded underneath it. It pruned from, from water. Um, and it had expanded by about a quarter. Um, oh and my. then there was a slit down the middle of it. So I couldn't stand oh. anymore. Um, and I was in excruciating pain and they had to tend to me medically. And they were all very worried <laughs> that, you know, this wasn't going to be able to finish. Um, but they put on wool sock, they put on polysporin and antiseptic and put on wool socks and then put, put like Fortino's bags over my feet. And, and then I just kept on going for another 11 and a half hours until I could see paramedics and Goderich. Um, not glamorous, but it worked. It definitely not glamorous. Um, but you just have to keep on saying to yourself that, you know, this, you know, I can do this. And, um, and I believe that I could do it. So, so yeah, here we are. <laughs> well, and, and just before we go, and I wish we had a lot more time, but you have Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, right? That's what is behind the, the challenge you have. Now, that is, as you mentioned, the same thing that Justin Bieber just told everybody that he has. And a lot of people thought, 
while Justin Bieber's thing sounds like it's Bell's palsy or something that's kind of temporary, this may be then looking at you and you've overcome an awful lot, but this may be something longer term for him. Oh yeah, this is something that I've done a lot of interviews about about this in the last couple couple weeks. Like this is it's a it can be too severe. Um, Ramsey Hunt syndrome can it presents multiple disabilities. I have vision and hearing impairments. I have vertigo um, that is chronic for the rest of my life. Um, it I had to spend a year learning how to walk again. It can it. You know, people can develop brain damage if it's not caught early enough. Um, it's a very, very serious thing um, that people should should be researching. Um, and um, mm. and I hope that, you know, what this does with, with Justin, I hope it brings a lot more awareness to it. Absolutely. Uh, Mike Shoreman, whose name is rather ironic, isn't it? When he's paddling anywhere but the shore, leaving the shore immediately. Uh, you've probably heard that before a million times. Anyway, Mike Shoreman, uh, the unbalanced paddler, he calls himself, paddleboarder. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for doing this and good luck with the next one. Thank you very much. It is a remarkable story what he does. Uh, read about it, look it up. Um, 28 hours. Uh, I don't know if I could sleep slate straight through or lie on a couch straight through for 28 hours, let alone paddle anywhere. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The very first game in the Memorial Cup this year will involve the Hamilton Bulldogs taking on the host St. John Sea Dogs. I'll tell you someone who knows about the Memorial Cup and about that particular team. His name is Tim Roselle. He is now the Moncton Wildcats play-by-play announcer, but the longtime voice of the St. John Sea Dogs, who joins us this morning. Tim, how are you? I'm great. Good morning. Thank you. Really appreciate you coming on here. Now, you know, we in Hamilton, you, you've been through a number of Memorial Cups with St. John. They've been there a bunch of times. We in Hamilton, last time in the, got to the Memorial Cup 2018, ran into the host team in the first game, hadn't played in like two, a month and a half because they got eliminated ran into the host team, and they were upset right off the bat, and it set them back on their heels. Here we are now, opening game, host team, been out for a while. Should they be worried again? Well, it's going to be an interesting, there are a number of interesting storylines going into tonight. There's no question about that. And and uh, the St. John Sea Dogs being the host team uh, is certainly an interesting story for sure. Uh, you know, not the least of which because, as you say, they were eliminated early in the playoffs this year as well. They were they were ousted in five games uh, in a best-of-five first-round series by the Ramouski Oceanic and then abruptly fired their head coach, uh, which really hasn't been done in a long time. And, and uh, in, in a virtually unprecedented situation, they, they hired a, a new coach temporarily from the University of New Brunswick in Gardner McDougall, who's going to guide the team, uh, who has guided the team, I should say, through the last month or so of practices and now we'll guide them through this tournament and then he heads back to his old job huh. so uh it, it's a very unique situation and it will be interesting to see what we see out of st john tonight uh, you know the 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 optimist point of view from a sea dog perspective would say you know what uh, this is a team that's rested they should be hungry they should be fresh and ready to go but there's also a, a rust factor that can come into play when you haven't had game action for you know, the better part of six weeks, uh, whereas Hamilton, of course, went the distance against Windsor uh, and just finished up their series. They're very much in game shape. Uh, they are dealing with injuries, but uh, but at the same time, it's 
it's uh, you know it's one of the many storylines coming into tonight. Should be interesting to watch for sure. Yeah, I, I remember the day when uh, a few years ago when New Jersey, when the New Jersey Devils fired, was it Larry Robinson? They fired right before the playoffs, and then went on like with games left in the season, and went on to win. So, you know, it's not common, but it's worked before. We'll see if it works for uh, for St. John. What is the what does the Memorial Cup mean out east? What what does it mean to that community that that championship is there? Well, you know, it means a lot. And, and speaking, as you as you mentioned off the top, as someone that used to work for that organization, I was part of the team when uh, when they bid for the uh, for the Memorial Cup in 2012 and lost the bid to Shawinigan. Um, and and it was uh, it was a heartbreaking scenario for the team at the time. Uh, the team had built uh, a club that it felt was was ready to host and and uh, and submitted a, a really solid bid. And uh, and it's you know it was unfortunate at the time that that Schwinnigan ended up uh, winning the bid. Now uh, you know as as irony would have it, uh, you know St. John went into that tournament as champions that year in the queue, and the host Schwinnigan team ended up winning it all. But uh, you know it, it means a lot out here for sure. And and uh, the last Memorial Cup was in Halifax three years ago. Of course, we haven't had it the last couple of years. Uh, at, you know anywhere in Canada because of the pandemic. And so for it to be in Atlantic Canada, really, uh, you know, in back-to-back tournaments, it, it means a lot for sure. And it's, it's something that, that the owner in St. John, Scott McCain, has been, uh, you know, talking about really almost since he, since he launched this franchise back in, the, in 2005. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it means a lot to this community. It's something that they've wanted for a very long time and something they've been building for for the last four or five years. And one of the beauties of this, and it's it's kind of in some way, it's kind of like the old style World Series where you had the National American League teams who had never played each other. Only this is even more because I gotta say, it, most people probably in St. John, maybe because you're hosting, they have, but in Shawinigan, I don't know how many people in Shawinigan have been watching what's happening in the Western Hockey League or Ontario. I, I don't think many people in Hamilton have been watching to see what the Western League is doing or how Shawinigan plays or St. John. Like it's a complete mystery. To most people, when these teams show up, what's going to happen? It really is, and and it, you know, if I think back to when St. John went to the Memorial Cup and eventually won it in 2011, I was with them then as well. And uh, the Sea Dogs at the time were very much an unknown, and uh, you know, everybody knew that uh, that Mississauga St. Mike's uh, was was going to be one of the teams to beat, and and you know, you had to keep an eye on Kootenay, and and, uh, and and you know, Owen Sound was was right there as well. And, and St. John came in kind of virtually as an unknown and, and as a team that, that was a younger group uh, that uh, players like Jonathan Huberto and Nathan Beaulieu, they hadn't been drafted yet into the NHL. They were only in their 17-year-old seasons. And St. John came in and won its first two games and, and gave itself a bye right into the finals. And it, it put everybody on their heels right away. And, and I think part of that was because, because of what you say, because of that unknown. And even now, here we are 11 years later, it's – it can be difficult at times to to follow what's happening in the Ontario Hockey League or in the Western Hockey League, and it's and it's at times as well difficult to gauge how teams match up. You might think, well, uh, you know, this one team dominates their league, but how well do they match up against this club from this yeah. other league? That's that's one of the unique things about this tournament, and it's one of the things that that makes it really great. So, um, you know, I have no doubt, uh, just based on what I've been hearing and what I've been seeing over the last little while. Uh, I would expect uh, that uh, that Hamilton can can expect to see 
uh, a big push from St. John early on. They want to try and give themselves some confidence. For sure. After what was a really tough first round uh, and first round loss, they want to give themselves some confidence, and especially under a new head coach as well. For um, sure. Yeah. So, so in order and and in front of a hometown crowd, you know they've got that's a big one. Got that's a big one. Crowd behind them, and Tim- uh, and so you know Hamilton might be just looking to tread water for a little while, sort of, uh, you know, try and create as many stoppages in play as possible. Yeah, ride it out. Tim, we got to... On and, 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 you know, and see if they can can swing momentum in their favor. But it's, you know, again, it's going to be a really intriguing matchup here tonight for, for so, so many reasons. Really appreciate it, Tim. we got to run, but thank you so much for this uh, first game tonight out of St. John Hamilton against St. John, the host team. Uh, Tim, thanks for doing this. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.